It's my pleasure this morning to introduce to uh, you uh, Dr. Um, Andrew Ollerton. And I'm really excited because I like him already. We've only just met this morning, but I like him because he's someone who takes complex things and makes them simple. I like people like that. <laughs> Do you like people like that? Someone who has an ability to explain. And I'll tell you the other reason why I, I like Andrew, because he's written a book called The Bible. I tell you, you learn something new every day, don't you? I thought it was Keith Warrington that wrote it. <laughs> Andrew has written a, a couple of books. He's a pastor and a theologian. Uh, his book, The Bible, A Story That Makes Sense of Life. Andrew, as well, is also responsible for the Bible course, which I know many of you will have used in your own assemblies. And Andrew uh, is the author of the Bible course that just makes uh, the discipleship uh, life seem so easy and attainable. And so I know that what Andrew's going to bring this morning is going to help us, encourage us. Thank you so much uh, for that welcome. It really is a joy to be with you. Uh, good morning, Elim. It really is a treat, honestly, to be here. Not just to speak and partner a little bit with Elim, but just to be here. I arrived last night and... Um, my soul has already been helped by what I've heard. Is that the case with you as well? What a fantastic uh, word that was last night, but challenging from Mr. Pug, is that right? Um, <laughs> Monsieur Pug, sorry, Monsieur Pug, that was brilliant. And deeply um, challenging, both humbling and healing, that kind of word. And then um, our American friend this morning, uh, Rich, what a brilliant message that was as well. I just feel uh, so challenged by that. I wouldn't let him make me a cup of tea. I decided that pretty quickly as I... <laughs> So it wasn't even tea in a mug with a white interior. Do you not agree that you cannot make tea? Honestly, the Americans have no idea, but you cannot. <laughs> you cannot make tea in a mug without a white interior, and it's got to be Yorkshire tea. Do I hear an amen to that? We're in Harrogate. We're bringing it home. So, um, I, yeah, I wouldn't let him make me a cup of tea, and we need to pray for his marriage. But apart from that, <laughs> what a fantastic word that was about dwelling uh, in the presence of the Lord. I want to sort of stand on their shoulders a little bit, I hope, and just uh, build on what they've brilliantly delivered and all the other things you've uh, experienced in this uh, summit so far. And in particular, as we think about being mission-hearted, uh, the message I'm bringing is called Mobilizing Mission Through the Bible. Mobilizing God's mission through the Bible. I don't know about you, but I love the Bible. I mean, at times I have a bit of a love-hate relationship. Do you, do you with the Bible? Some, some bits of it you think, gosh, is that really in there? I'm reading through the book of Judges at the moment, so that might partly explain what I'm saying. But, you know, it's knotty, it's complex, it's challenging, and yet it is life-giving. It has vitality. I've seen it transform not only my own life, but so many other people's lives as well. And it does things that you don't even realize it's doing when you allow it to do so. And it has an endurance and a durability to it that is quite staggering. It's still the world's best-selling book. It's still the most translated, distributed. It's the most banned and burned book of all time. It's also apparently the most shoplifted book of all time. Did you know that? Even though it actually says, thou shalt not do that, it still is. Uh, maybe the people who nick it then read it and put it back. I don't know. But the... the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the atheist philosopher Voltaire famously said of the Bible, that it will soon, and he said in a hundred years, it will be unknown and forgotten. A hundred years after he said that, that his former home had become the headquarters for Bible Society France, 
to try and meet the growing demand for the Bible. You know, amazing durability. This has been thrown to the dogs many times, and each time it's the dog that died, right? This is not going away. It's God's enduring, truthful words. Amen? Amen. And I believe that when Christians, and in fact, here's the headline for this message. When God's people become confident in God's word, it is catalytic for mission. I believe that. When God's people become confident in God's word, it is catalytic for mission. And yet, and yet the challenge or the question that begs is how confident are God's people in God's word? I mean, if I was to ask you today, not just perhaps for yourself, let's start with our, in our own backyard, for ourselves, how confident are we in, in, our, in God's word. Now, I don't actually mean doctrinally what we say about it. I mean what we're actually doing with it. Because doctrine is one thing, practice is another, isn't it? What are we actually doing with it? And how confident are we missionally to share it? Not just to feed ourselves from it, but to share God's word. And Bible Society, who I work with, they conducted some research uh, called, it was entitled Digital Millennials. And one of the interesting findings was that, and you can download this online and you can see Around 70% of Christian millennials who were, who were researched at this time, they declared that the Bible, they believed it was the Word of God, it was inspired by God. So they said the right things, but around 50% of the same people said that their relationship with the Bible was either haphazard or non-existent. So you notice, I mean, it's like the London Underground, isn't it? Mind the gap between this is the Word of God, but our relationship with it is haphazard or non-existent. So if we were to think, you know, in our own backyard, in your context where you are called to lead, in fact, you can see on the slide here a, a sort of spectrum, you know, or a, 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 a scale, a sliding scale. I wonder how confident are young adults in the Bible in your context? And I say young adults because obviously that's the future that we're seeing come through. So I wonder where you would place people. And of course, there'll be all sorts of different answers to that. And some of us as churches will be knocking it out of the park. But... I have a concern that we need to raise confidence in the Bible. Amen? And that that is actually, and here's the point, the reason this matters, that is catalytic for mission. You see, when we become confident in our stuff, in our message, we can't help but become more confident to share it and see it transform our world. You only have to find someone who works for Apple. Have you ever met some of these Apple geeks? And um, even if they're not in the Apple store, they're so proud of their kit. <laughs> they so love their stuff. They so understand how it works that they are evangelists even when they're not on duty. Have you noticed this? We need to raise up God's people to be so confident, so proud of our kit, <laughs> so understanding of what it can do that we are evangelists in and through it. And I've seen, you know, even just, I was thinking even recently of people where I've noticed when they understood the Bible in a fresh and captivating way, they just went and did something missional as a consequence. It was catalytic for mission. I actually, um, the book I wrote on the Bible, uh, not, not the Bible, but on the Bible, uh, was mentioned earlier, and uh, a quite well-known, very well-known actually, celebrity actually ended up reading it, and he reached out to me, and it was interesting, we had a little conversation, and he said to me, um, it, almost with an element of surprise, he said, the Bible's amazing, isn't it? And I said, I know. <laughs> and he said... Uh, and he said, and it's one big story, isn't it? It's God's story. And I said, I know. That was the point, you know. And he said, and we, we need to find a way to tell the world about this. And I said, I know. 
And then he said, we should make a movie. And I said, I don't know. <laughs> um, who knows, watch this space. But my point is, understand the Bible. Reimagine it as the true story of the world that makes sense of our human condition. And suddenly it is catalytic for mission. Now I want to unpack this thought that when God's people, remember the headline, when God's people become confident in God's word, it is catalytic for mission. I want to unpack this thought through a story in the Bible, in the, uh, the story of Josiah. And I have to say, for me personally, this isn't just any old message. Uh, when I finished my PhD, uh, doctoral studies, and then also uh, we just landed a new edition of the Bible course, and previously I'd been uh, leading and planting churches, and I was sort of at that crossroads thinking, how am I to move forwards? And in a prayer retreat, as I dwelt with the Lord, I felt him speak to me from this story of Josiah, showing me something about it that I felt was prophetic for the church in the UK today, and asking me to understand it as part of the contribution that I'm to make with my little contribution today. So this story comes from a deep place, the story of Josiah. Now, I can already see that many of you are panicking, thinking, I don't know the story of Josiah. I don't understand. I don't, don't, don't even know where it is. It's in the Old Testament, Chris, if you, uh, if you, wherever you are, if you're wondering. There it is, yeah, in the old, yeah, first half. Um, anyway, the story of Josiah, I joke. The story of Josiah, let's, um, for that reason, I'm not presuming anything here, let's put it into its context um, before we have a look at the text. And I, um, with a Bible course, one of the things that emerged from it uh, is a sort of storyline visual. You can see it on the screen if you click on. There's a, a kind of visual that I've found helpful. I'm a visual learner. Is anyone else a visual learner? Uh, for me, I've got to see it if I'm to get it. And so I was thinking, well, how would you imagine the shape of the storyline of, of Scripture? And this is what I came up with. You could probably improve it if you tried. But let me just place the story of Josiah in its original context. You notice with the Bible, the beautiful symmetry, it begins with a tree of life at creation, and it ends with a tree of life in the new creation, even if it's a bit complex in between. And you find with the storyline of Scripture, as the story of God's people goes down to Egypt through Joseph, and then they're enslaved for 400 years. Then through Moses, they come up out of Egypt and into the promised land. Then there's the cycles of the judges. I'm reading that at the moment, and they really are stuck <laughs> in these repeated cycles. Before the era of the kings, David unites the tribes. And then after Solomon, 930 BC, there's a division in the kingdom. The northern kingdom, the northern tribes, break away from the southern tribes. And in 722 BC, it ends in disaster. The Assyrians sack the northern kingdom and destroy it. And so all eyes turn down south to Judah, which is, of course, the tribe through which the Messiah will come. So they have that hope, but it breeds complacency. They assume they are invincible. They have the temple, and they have the Messianic promises. But actually, later in the story, they will be led away and destroyed. Jerusalem will be destroyed. They will spend 70 years in Babylon before returning, rebuilding, and awaiting the true Messiah. Now, that's the big story of the Bible, but here's our character, Josiah. He fits in in this southern kingdom around 630 BC. Now, why is that relevant? Well, because this is then one of the darkest moments in Israel's history. The northern kingdom has already been destroyed. The Assyrians are knocking on the door. And down south, the kings are in a state of compromise. The culture of the nation has turned to idols. Josiah's grandfather was Manasseh. If you know anything about the Bible, that's practically a swear word, right? He was the worst king in Israel's history. That's his granddad. His father is assassinated when Josiah is eight years of age, and suddenly he's made king. Now, that is hardly set up for success, right? 
Talk about coming from a broken background. Your, your grandfather's the worst king in Israel's history, and your father's assassinated in front of your eyes aged eight, and you're king. Now, my point is this. You would expect it simply to say, therefore, Josiah also did evil in the eyes of the Lord and was buried with his fathers. But how many of us know that the introduction of God's word is a game changer? Amen? The introduction of God's word can change a storyline and the trajectory, not just of an individual, but of a nation. Amen? And this is what we see in the story of Josiah. This is why I think it speaks prophetically to us in the cultural moment that we're in. I want to unpack it in three scenes. Firstly, to see the Bible was backstage, how it got put main stage, and then how it upstaged the culture of compromise at that time. So first up, scene one, the Bible backstage. When Josiah becomes king, as we'll see, the Bible is very much backstage, their, their portion of scripture. But Josiah commissions some building works to be done on the temple. And as they begin to move things around, as builders do, they're very disruptive. They disrupt and move things around. And lo and behold, we read this, 2 Kings 22. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan who read it. Then Shaphan the secretary informed King Josiah, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. Now, this book of the law that they discovered buried under other things was probably either the whole of or a portion of Deuteronomy. But as far as Israel was concerned at this time, it was their scriptures. It was their written word of God, the Bible as we would think of it. And lo and behold, they'd lost it. Isn't that extraordinary? I mean, we're used to losing our keys or our mobile phone, but how do you lose the Bible as God's people? <laughs> well, notice it wasn't that they ever rejected it. It's not that they ever threw it out. They actually always had it. It's just that somehow it became buried under all sorts of other priorities and things that seemed more important. Now does that sound prophetic? <laughs> now does that sound like a challenge for us? Isn't it easy for us, nevertheless, despite saying the things that are true about the Bible, to find that even if we don't wish it to, it becomes buried by all kinds of other priorities and it just never quite happens. You, is this just me? <laughs> I remember a friend saying to me, I read the Bible almost every day, almost on Monday, you know, almost on Tuesday, <laughs> almost on Wednesday. <laughs> and that's the sort of buried but still precious to us kind of scenario that God's people find themselves at this time. And, and this happens very subtly, very imperceptibly, because we're immersed. God's people right now, we're immersed in this culture that is hardly encouraging us towards a confident engagement with the Scriptures. Quite the opposite, a culture that is moving us away, and if we allow that just to happen as leaders, there will be a drift. I, I remember many years ago, we lived in Cornwall, beautiful Cornwall, and um, this is in the days before we had children, we had time. Um, and so we went to the beach and uh, enjoyed the beach, my wife and I with a couple of friends, and we were there for some time. And you know what you do when you go to the beach? You make a pile of your stuff, um, and then we went in the sea probably for, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes. And uh, we had a great time bodyboarding and things. And, but when we came out, someone had stolen all of our stuff. And I remember they took everything. I remember thinking to myself, what kind of a person steals socks? <laughs> They'd literally taken everything that we had. And so I went and found the lifeguard. And I said, you need to call the police. You know, I, 
explain the situation. And he sort of looked at me in a knowing way and he said, I will call the police for you in a moment, but before I do, would you just check about 50 yards up the beach that way? Went up the beach that way and lo and behold, there was all of our stuff. And I still didn't get it. I think I had a brain freeze. I remember thinking to myself, what kind of a person moves all of your stuff? <laughs> but have you ever had that experience? You know, what, you know what this feels like, right? You just don't realize, immersed in strong cultural currents, we're moving all the time. But you just don't realize it's happening. It's subtle, isn't it? Secular humanism, it's, we're immersed in it. It's the educational and media context in which we're growing up. And before you know it, we're moving, but we don't know it. And we're being raised, our children are being raised in a world that says, oh, the Bible, magic, superstition. We used to believe in that sort of thing, but now we understand the world. You know, now we've got Wikipedia and science and all these other things. We, that's old-fashioned, old and we're moving with it. And then not just secular humanism, but digital consumerism. You know, that kind of, again, that intention of engaging with Scripture, but there's a lot of other things to watch or game or play. And, and before you know it, you're actually a long way from your stuff even though you never intended to be. I don't know about you, but as a leader, sometimes you have those moments, those reference points where you thought we had an understanding about the scriptures being our authority, and it just, you look up and you think, gosh, we're not quite where we thought we were. Anyone else? <laughs> well, when Josiah saw this, he realized as a leader, he needed to take action. Something had to be done. Did you notice that tearing of his robes? It's an Old Testament way, effectively, of saying, this has got to stop. And this has got to change. That drift from the scriptures will cost us. If we fast forward another 20 years, where will we be then? And what impact will that have on the church's confidence for mission to a world that so desperately needs to know the truth of God? There is a call for leaders to take action. Just as Josiah tore his robes with an understanding, this needs to change. There's something, I feel almost there's something, and maybe it was Rachel who said it last night, actually, but I already not dropped drop this down as a note. There's something about saying today, not on our watch. We are not simply going to allow the drift to happen on our watch and not take strategic intervention to bring change. And by that drift, I mean not just in the culture, I mean as much in the church. And again, I'm just pointing out a few things here that I'm not saying in any way that you know, 40 years ago was better. I don't mean that. But you just think about some things that have changed. Just kind of think with me, you know, do you remember when people, we used to have Bible studies? Do you remember those days? <laughs> That's a while ago now, isn't it? Because small groups aren't Bible studies anymore, typically. Now, again, I'm not saying we should go back. I'm not saying the past was better. I'm not being old-fashioned about it. But isn't it interesting that things have changed? The tradition of there's a Bible study where the text is open and God's people are taught how to make sense of a text together in community. That tradition isn't always there anymore because often those times are used for other things, and I get that, and it's important stuff, but we need to just watch what's happening here, because if we let it happen, we will drift. You remember family devotions? Is that happening? Personal devotions, is that happening? People used to speak about Bible college. Now again, I'm not endorsing anything that that represented, but gosh, it is possible, isn't it, to do leadership development courses, church planting courses, or even a degree in theology, and still not really have a great confidence in the scripture. Unless, of course, you've done that at Regents, which I know is <laughs> exempt from that. But I'm, ta I'm talking about other Bible colleges. I was in Africa uh, just last week, actually, meeting with leaders from across Africa, and, and sometimes you have to get out of your own context to realize what's happening in your context. Do you know what I mean? I was talking to one guy in Uganda, and he was saying that they are 
raising up church planters because of the need, and he said that they have a nine-month sort of crash course training. In that nine months, these guys, many and, and ladies, many of whom aren't particularly strong readers, they read the Bible three times through in nine months. I was like, goodness me, you know? And that's, that's not the course, that's just what they need to do as part, and it's like Bible confidence. I'm not talking about academic knowledge, I'm talking about a robust confidence in God's word. We, if we are not careful, we will drift with a culture that's moving a very different direction. And in scene two, Josiah realizes it's time to take action. The Bible's been buried backstage, we must bring it main stage, center stage again, if God's people are gonna be confident in God's word, amen? So as I'm talking now into scene two, I'm asking you as leaders, what is the strategic intervention? Of course, it'll be different to Josiah's day, but what are the strategic interventions required to stop the drift, to correct the course, and to bring back confidence in God's word? Well, what Josiah does uh, is recorded in 2 Kings, and we're reading now in in chapter 23. Uh, We read this. Josiah went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. And and in their hearing, he read all the words of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord. Notice then the leader taking action. Notice a couple of details here. The leader gathers all of the people. I love that little phrase. We'll come back to it from the least to the greatest. And the leader themselves models the change they want to see. Josiah, the king, and notice at this time, kings were not meant to be scholars or readers. They had scribes to do that. They were meant to be warriors. But the king here shows himself to be holding and reading the word to the people. He won't delegate that task because he wants the people to see that he's modeling the change that he wants for the whole nation. God's people centered once again around his word. Imagine how fresh that must have felt. These people had never heard it before. How intrigued and fresh and compelling it must have been for that assembly to hear God's word. And I kind of think to myself as I say that, perhaps this problem of biblical illiteracy is also an opportunity. (laughs) Because I think there's a generation growing up who are hearing it like they've never heard it before because they haven't. And that's true in the church as well as in culture. Actually leaning in to hear how the story ends up because they genuinely don't know and that's one of the freshest ways to experience it. So the problem can also be our opportunity to bring about change. I want to highlight three things that I, I see Josiah doing here that I think have principles for us. What can we as leaders do to raise confidence in the Bible? Well, firstly, we can develop a culture where everyone grows with the Bible. Can you say that word, everyone? Let's say it together. Everyone. Notice the phrase, from the least to the greatest. I love this because, I mean, what were the literacy rates at this time? We don't know, but they would have been much lower than today. We know that for sure. Josiah could so easily have thought, well, you know, so long as the scribes and the priests are there, the ordained people, you know, the the, the ordinary people, the laborers, the the, the ordinary folk, they don't need to understand this so long as the leaders do. But no, it's like, no, no, the Bible belongs to the people. I mean, blood has been spilt in our nation for that truth, right? The Bible belongs to the people. You think of William Tyndale, uh, who was strangled in Antwerp for daring to translate the Bible into the common English language. You know, lives have been lost to say the Bible does not belong to the elite. 
or to the ordained. It belongs to the people. It was written by ordinary people and for ordinary people. Tyndale famously said to a clergyman who opposed his work of translation, this is to a a priest now, he famously said, I will cause it that the boy that drives the plow will know the scriptures better than you do. (laughs) I love that indignation. I love that, that spirit. This is for the boy that drives the plow. Josiah gets this. This is from the least to the greatest. We will, we will develop pathways so that all of God's people can become confident in God's word, that all of God's people might contribute to God's mission. Amen? So Josiah sets about this task. And I actually believe when you understand what the Bible is, that makes sense of what he does. Because the Bible is not actually a book just with some doctrinal information. It is not even just a book for a religious text for Christians. The Bible opens, doesn't it, with the greatest scale in mind. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, that is, if you're gonna start with that kind of opening line, you're you're including everyone in this story. In other words, this is not just the Christian story, this is the true human story. This is the story of our world, as it should be rightly understood. I think one of England's greatest theologians really nails this, um, Lee Mack. Uh, What a a theologian Lee Mack is. Actually, I joke, but I think he had a slightly better understanding of the Bible than most Christians do, because he was on Desert Island Discs. You can listen to this podcast and listen to what he says on Desert Island Discs. He says, I would take the Bible and I'd read it, he said. Imagine if aliens landed and asked, so what's earth? What's human life all about? I'd say, well, there's this book that purports to give the answers. And they'd ask, so what does it say? He says, it would feel silly to admit that I haven't actually read it. (laughs) Well, I hope that one day Lee Mack does read it, but I appreciate his vision for what the Bible actually is, right? If you want to understand planet Earth, this is the go-to book. This makes sense of why we're here and what human life is all about. Now, if that's the case, we want to create pathways for all of God's people to experience and engage with God's word. And I believe as leaders, particularly strategic in this regard, are two audiences, young Christians and young people. I think of all the the pathways we need to be intentional about, we need to make sure we've got an intentional pathway for young Christians to become confident in God's word. Because we can't assume anything today, and nor should we. We have to help people move forwards to a confident engagement with the Bible. When I was um, leading churches, we saw a lot of people come to faith. And I remember one Easter, we baptized a dozen or so people in the sea, which was so exciting. But then I just kind of realized more and more, but whilst the Holy Spirit has now given them an appetite for truth and for God's word, they still don't really understand where to begin. You know, it doesn't make sense to them. We can't assume anything. It's not obvious. And so I gathered these um, baptized people and I said, I'll give you a crash course in the Bible. And really, one thing led to another, and that's actually where the Bible course has originated from. It was just trying to help new Christians get confident in God's Word. And it's evolved, and it's developed, and it's hopefully much better than it was back then in its Cornish days. And now it's in Mandarin, and Portuguese, and French, and Spanish, and it's all, all very exciting. But my point is, it goes back to the priority of, what are we doing to help young Christians, post-alpha, post-whatever it is that's brought them in, What's their pathway to become self-feeding, confident in God's word? I think as leaders, we've got, to, we've got to answer that question. And I hope the Bible course is part of the answer. As you leave today, you should be given uh, a little flyer, which is a particular offer. We're partnering, uh, Bible course and, and Elim are partnering 
so that you can run this with a significant discount. So please consider it. But if there's something else you found that's better, go for that. What my, my point is, what's the pathway for young Christians and young people? What, what is our pathway for families to nurture faith and for young people, particularly teenagers, to grow strong in the word? Because the fall off, the drop off rate when they leave home is pretty serious right now. The research is not good about how confident our confidence is being affected beyond those teenage years. And we need to be intentional then. I, I was speaking to a leader recently who leads a very significant church. So it's not like they've got lots of spare time on their hands. But he said, I make it my priority to sit down with our sixth formers and I will help them get confident in scripture before they go to university. That's something I'm not delegating. He said, I, I want to know that they've got a confidence in God's word and they've wrestled with some of the questions that are gonna come up and I've allowed them to ask their, air their doubts and kick back because if they can't do that in the safe zone, how are they gonna do that anywhere else? We've got to be intentional about creating pathways for everyone. Can you say that word again? Everyone to engage with God's word. And I think young Christians and young people are a strategic priority. Secondly, we need to develop, here's another way we can raise confidence in the Bible, we need to develop a culture of reliance on the Holy Spirit. I don't think anything kills people's confidence in the Bible more than when we make it sound all academic and we, we give the impression that unless you know the Greek or the Hebrew, you really haven't got a hope. <laughs> now listen, I've studied biblical uh, Hebrew and Greek and I appreciate those languages and I've hardly ever in my since I was 18, I've almost never left the university. So I, I appreciate academia, but God forgive us for giving the impression that that's the key to understanding the Bible. Yes, it can help, but the Bible opens itself not to IQ, but to the revelation of the Holy Spirit who inspired it. Amen? And we need to breed cultures and, and people who understand that whilst books and scholarship are incredibly helpful, it is ultimately a reliance on the Holy Spirit to make sense of the text that he inspired. And if the author is your roommate, that's a pretty good head start, right? <laughs> that should give you a hand in making sense of the text. But are we developing cultures where that clearly is embodied in a reliance we're making sense of scripture through at times a charismatic hermeneutic, a reliance on the spirit to understand and explain the text. Now, I see this in the story of Josiah because when Josiah, when they rediscover the book of the law, Josiah, um, before he calls the big assembly, he says, and we can read here, he says, Josiah said to the priests and scribes, go and inquire of the Lord for me about what is written in the book that has been found. Now, listen to what they do. The priests and the scribes went to speak to the prophetess Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. There's something, if you look carefully, almost comical about this. Certainly ironic. Here's the scribes and the priests, and Josiah commissions them, please will you go and make sense of this text. They go and find Huldah, <laughs> who lives not in a particularly wealthy postcode, you know, the second quarter of Jerusalem, and yet she is a prophetess. She has the spirit. And these ordained, trained men go and find the woman who has the spirit of God because the text opens to the spirit. Amen? We need to encourage that confidence in our, in our culture as God's people. This book was written by ordinary people, for ordinary people, and the particular resource that you need to make sense of it is the Holy Spirit. He brings illumination. 
He brings revelation as we sit with the text and pray through it in his presence, as we discuss that together. Once again, you know, time and again, you see this in people. I, I, I remember particularly a young man that came down to the church we were leading called Danny, and uh, he was actually running away from gang culture and drug addiction in London, and he got on the train and he got off where the train stopped, and, and that happened to be where we lived. So he got off, and uh, to cut a long story short, he got into rehab, and he also turned up at our church, and he didn't actually come in. He told me afterwards that he sat outside and he, he was afraid he'd burst into flames if he came through the door. So he went home, but he started to read a Bible. Now, Danny, by his own confession, had never read a book in his life, but that was the game changer for Danny. And he said that it just began to, as he put it, quieten down the madness. That was his phrase. And I remember when I met with Danny, to cut a long story short, he made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And then stupidly, I said to him, well, now you're a Christian, why don't you read Romans? <laughs> Here's this guy, right? He's never read a book in his life. And so I said to him, you read a chapter of Romans and I'll come and meet with you each week and we'll talk about it. Well, I tell you what, I turned up to meet with Danny. I could not believe the understanding that he had. And in fact, at one point I became suspicious. I remember saying to Danny, who, who else are you meeting with? <laughs> Someone else. Well, the, the other person is the personal presence of the Holy Spirit who was making sense to this young guy in a way that resonated with his spirit and opened the text. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting start with Romans, although, my word, what a, what a letter. I've been studying that recently with some young people, and goodness me, that's such a punch, doesn't it? And why not, hey? <laughs> if the spirit's with us, why not dig into some stuff that could actually shift something? It certainly did for Danny. I phoned him not that long ago just to see how he was doing. He'd moved back to London, and I was a little bit concerned that perhaps he'd slip back a little bit. And um, he answered the phone, and he's got a thick Cockney accent. And he said, I, he said, I said, how are you, Dan? He says, I'm good, Andrew, I'm good. And I said, what, what have you been up to? And he said, I have been studying presuppositional apologetics. <laughs> 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 Which is not a class A drug, just to reassure you. So he's, <laughs> he's heading in the right direction. God's people can make sense of God's word through God's Holy Spirit. We need to cultivate that kind of confidence. And then thirdly, third strategy, we need to develop pathways for everyone, cultivate a reliance on the Spirit. And thirdly, we need to develop a culture of confident Bible communication. Notice Josiah gathered the people for the public reading of and explanation of the Scriptures. He took the lead and took the charge on bringing God's people in their gathering to put the Bible central and to say, as we open this text, it will speak to us. And it will make sense of who we are and what God's calling us to do in the world. He backed the Bible to make sense as he communicated it. And I believe this is an important part of leadership, is that we model a confident communication of the Scriptures. And again, I, I, I can't help but think, if that isn't something, if we're not modeling the change that we want to see, we're not going to see the change that we want to see. It begins with a confidence that starts in our hearts God has inspired his word. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. It's all useful that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, with, with that thought in mind, as we communicate in gathered settings, can I encourage us to physically open the text of scripture? I mean, that, that sounds obvious, but perhaps it's not as obvious as it should be. We need to hold it and show people who are looking in, this is our primary source. This is where we get our stuff from. <laughs> we trust this. We have reason to believe it's credible and reliable and, vi and, and has a vitality that speaks. And not, not only do we open it, 
and read from it, but we actually develop our teaching and our points from the text of Scripture. Because I don't just want to say the right thing, I want to show my workings to show that I have developed that from the Scriptures. Why? Because that's what I want everyone else to do life like. That's how we make our decisions, right? No wonder we're drifting with culture if in our gathered settings we're not showing people this is how we understand what's true. We open the text and we see what God has revealed. And so often when you do this, I, I, I'm sure you've had this experience as well, so often when you do this, you'll have someone say to you at the end something like this, you know, oh, thank you so much for opening the Bible and, and teaching from it. That was so refreshing. <laughs> You're like, thank you for that compliment, but what on earth is everyone else doing? <laughs> why, why is that refreshing? You know, I'm all for thematic messages. I'm all for prophetic messages, but surely expository preaching, surely letting the scriptures set the agenda for what we teach. Surely that's normal, right? <clears throat> I thank God for being part of many years now, and, and at one time the teaching pastor at Kingsgate Church, which some of you will be familiar with. And I, I thank God for that because Dave and Karen Smith, that you may know, they really um, have, have baked this into the culture. You know, and it's this incredible confidence in two things biblical depth and cultural relevance. And we're never trading on those. We're always seeking to bring the, the power and the dynamism of those two things together. But my concern is unless we work hard, unless we have a confidence in Scripture, we start trading in ways that betray a loss of confidence that then gets replicated in the congregation. Can I urge us to think carefully about the diet that we are bringing and what we're modeling as we communicate the Scriptures? Because actually, I think there's a great opportunity here. I'm just sensing more and more young people who are hungry for this. Some great communicators on the other side of the pond, John Mark Comer and others, who are demonstrating you can actually captivate people with truth that changes lives from the text of Scripture. You can take this very seriously, and it works. <laughs> well, we need to raise up, don't we, a new generation of brilliant Bible communicators. And, and I'm not saying brilliant communicators. I'm saying brilliant Bible communicators. How do you do that? How do you do that? A, few, a couple of you caught me yesterday, young, young leaders who, when we were on Zoom in lockdown, I did a six-part coaching on how to turn a passage into a message. And just talking to a couple of young leaders here yesterday on how much that wasn't something they'd understood, but how much they now use that. And it's like, we've got to be useful and practical, but we've got to coach young leaders to make sense of the Scriptures in a way that has cultural relevance and God's Word brings power and change. And I, I really urge Elam to think seriously. I mean, we need Elam to play your part in this. Wouldn't it be fantastic if Elam developed some brilliant Bible communicators? And that was an intentional desire of our hearts. We're going to invest in brilliant Bible communicators. Online for the digital age where the mission is at, as well as in person, we're going to raise up brilliant Bible communicators. And actually, and here's the thing that has slightly caught us by surprise, whilst we're doing that, and whilst we need to do that, have you noticed that actually there are some people outside the church who are communicating the Bible? Have you noticed this? It's interesting this, isn't it? Because we think the Bible belongs to the church. But actually, I, I think whilst the church has drifted away from its stuff a bit, meanwhile, some people who aren't part of the church have stumbled over our stuff and thought, do you know what? This is pretty good. <laughs> and not only is it pretty good, actually, it's, it's the reason why we have so many of the things we appreciate today. 
I'm thinking, for example, of people like Jordan Peterson. Some of you may be familiar with him, and I'm not endorsing his politics or his views, but I am noting the fact that his lectures on Genesis have had about 10 million views on YouTube, which is a few more than my sermons on Genesis, I can tell you that. And I, I noticed this quote by Peterson, which I thought was brilliant. The great stories, the, he's talking about Genesis here, these great stories are part of the substructure of our society. In my experience, the farther I delve into them, the deeper they get. Just when you think you've got to the bottom, you realize there is no bottom. The Bible is like no other book. It's where, it is way more true than true. It is the precondition for truth. I mean, that guy's got millions and millions of followers and he's saying, this is brilliant, <laughs> this is truth, and we need to recover our confidence. Believing actually, and, and is this the case, believing actually that instead of thinking culture's just heading ever further away from the Bible, is it possible that culture's actually increasingly going to circle back round to something that it's never really seen before and realizes how much is needed? Actually, some of the erosion of foundations of meaning and truth will mean a young generation is emerging who are more open than ever. It's time for the church to get our confidence back in our stuff. Amen? Now, <clears throat> now, as I close, when we do this, and this is scene three, and I'll be brief. With scene three, we see this, that when we do this, the Bible upstages culture. When the church, when God's people get our confidence back in God's word, it can upstage a culture, which, as we said earlier, through Manasseh, had become thoroughly compromised. But we read in 2 Chronicles 34, listen to this, this is in the message, Josiah did a thorough job of cleaning up all the spiritual pollution. The whole nation got a spring clean. The people of Israel worshipped and served the God of their fathers. You see, in a, in a lifetime, within a generation, you go from an eight-year-old king being brought into a context of complete compromise, the rediscovery of God's word, putting it back central, by the end of his lifetime, that the nation has been reformed. Now, I, I know that's Old Testament. We face other challenges. I'm not making it sound all so simple, but I do believe the headline we started with, when God's people recover their confidence in God's word, it is catalytic for mission. And nations can change. Communities can change. Churches and individuals can change through the power of God's word. Do you not think our nation could do with something of a spring clean right now? What a lovely phrase. Oh God, do it again. Cause your word, let your word move in power. Let what's dead come to life. We're here for you, Lord. Amen? So I want to encourage us as we conclude, leaders, to be strategic in particular. On the final slide, you can just see some suggestions of what this might mean. But I want to invite us, not just now, but as we move on from here, to reflect with our team. You know, what is our strategy to grow Bible confidence? Could the Bible course be a regular part of that? Or another resource you may choose, but what is the strategy? What's the resource? And how can we train brilliant Bible communicators of the future that God's word may be put back center stage and upstage our culture with its power and truth? In Jesus' name, amen. 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 <clears throat> Well, I'd like to um, thank you, folks. Would you just stand with me? We're going to just uh, finish with a, a moment of worship. Let your word move in power. But maybe as we stand, you could take hold of something. Uh, if you've got it, perhaps it's on your phone or you've got a physical copy with you or just want to put your hand on your heart. But take hold of something that represents God's word. And just hold it up if, you, if you're happy, just as a, a sign before God. Lord, we're holding up your word. 
We're asking, Father, for your forgiveness for where this has been buried backstage. Forgive us, Lord, if we've lost our confidence and subtly allowed the world to take us away from our stuff. Lord, we think of our for the sake of our children, our grandchildren, our teenagers, our young adults. Lord, for the sake of the future, we want to leave it not on our watch. <laughs> we say that today, Lord, not on our watch. We, we want to leave a legacy of Bible confidence, not arrogance. We're not asking for that, Lord. Keep us from Bible arrogance. The world does not need any more of that. But Lord, give us Bible confidence, a confidence in your word. And we say together, perhaps we just say together, not on our watch. Not on our watch. We lift up your word, Lord, and we pray, not just in this moment, but as we return home for strategic interventions. As Josiah took action as the leader to put the Bible back main stage, Lord, in our preaching, in our training, in our investment and discipleship pathways, Lord, let your word move in power. And we pray, Lord, all of this, not for some tick box exercise of, oh yeah, we now know some things about the Bible. We pray this because when your people are confident in your word, it is catalytic for mission. We're mission-hearted, Lord, around your word. We want to see this word of God upstage a culture that's lost its way again. You've done it before. God, do it again. We say in Jesus, we lift up the name of Jesus. We lift up the word of God. And we say together, let your word move in power. Let what's dead come to life. In Jesus' name, we're here for you. Amen. Move in power. Let what's dead come to life.